Times outlines more parallels between our 37th and 45th presidents. Thin skin, paranoia, memory for slights, penchant for sowing mayhem, appetite for revenge. Both presidents viewed the press as the enemy. Of course, there's much that's rich and fascinating the life of Richard Nixon. We'll go beyond the parallels, uh, do a deep dive into his fascinating life and legacy. John Farrell is our guest, author of Richard Nixon, The Life. Hope you join us following the news.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The words Nixonian and Watergate are being increasingly applied to the Trump administration. We'll examine some of the parallels with uh, John A. Farrell, author of a new biography, Richard Nixon, The Life. Jennifer Sr., in her um, review of uh, the book in the New York Times, outlines some of the parallels between our 37th and 45th presidents. Thin skin, paranoia, memory for slights, uh, penchant for sowing mayhem, appetite for revenge. Of course, both presidents uh, thought of the press as the enemy. The list goes uh, on and on. Beyond those parallels, however... Uh, a fascinating, complex character, Richard Nixon, our 37th president, and uh, we'll uh, examine some of the parallels and do a deep dive into the fascinating uh, life and legacy of Richard Nixon. John Farrell is author of, previously of Clarence Darrow, Attorney for the Damned, which won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Biography, and Tip O'Neill in the Democratic Century. He's a longtime journalist, worked at the Denver Post and the Boston Globe, where he served as White House correspondent and on the vaunted uh, Spotlight team. And he joins us uh, for the hour. John Farrell, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, let me just read the, this opening paragraph from uh, Jennifer Sr.'s uh, review. <laughs> okay. while, while writing Richard Nixon, The Life, John Farrell could not possibly have known who would be president on the day his fine book was published. That it happened to be Donald J. Trump is for him an extraordinary stroke of luck. She goes on to say, to read this biography with an eye only toward the parallels between the two presidents would be lazy and unfair and a disservice to Farrell's nuanced scholarship, but the context here is unignorable. Similarities between Nixon and uh, Trump leaf off the page like crickets, and then I've uh, quoted uh, some of those. So I guess both things are true. There's, there, it is a stroke of luck, but I guess it is a danger that uh, this complex life gets lost in the parallels. Yeah, I think we had uh, some uh, coincidental comparisons that were uh uh, perking out there, and then all of a sudden, uh, last week, we in the, in the last week we've had game changers, and and the uh, comparisons are getting increasingly um, uh, undeniable. And uh, with the uh, you know a mini Saturday Night Massacre and the appointment of a now a appointment of an independent council, it's um, it's all beginning to sound very familiar to me. So um, you've previously written uh, biographies of Clarence Darrow, Tip O'Neill. Uh, why, why Richard Nixon? F- fascinating character, complex. Uh, why choose Richard Nixon? Well, I think that he's this great American tragedy, uh, and I, and in fact, that was the working title of the book: Richard Nixon and American Tragedy. Uh, a man with so many gifts, uh, so smart in many ways, and yet this tragic flaw of uh, insecurity and uh, self-loathing that caused him to lash out so viciously at his enemies. Um, in the end, brought him down just like a, a classical Shakespearean uh, figure or a figure out of Greek tragedy. Um, so that was the story that I wanted to tell. Uh, and I also wanted to tell it for a new generation. I, I didn't think that, that the baby boomers needed one more uh, volley in the culture war, uh, but that they, their kids and the Xers in between who know of Nixon only as this sort of stereotypical evil villain from either the Simpsons or you know the guy whose whose mask the bank robbers pull on before they go in to pull off the heist, would be uh, interested in finding out uh, what the real story was. And so that was a challenge. There was a, a flood of new information, records, tapes, documents coming out. And so it all sort of came together at the right time, and then sort of the whipped cream and the cherry on top of the sundae has been... Um, uh, the increasing number of comparisons to what's going on in Washington today. I was going to ask you about uh, about young people. I I'm old enough to have you know as a young man lived through Watergate, 
Um, I remember fierce debates between my um, New Deal Democrat, a fierce, you know, Welshman father um, who hated Nixon and just about all of our neighbors who thought Nixon was being railroaded by the evil press. Um, but for for younger people, um, what you know, there is the stereotype uh, you wanted to go deeper. What uh, what are the main things you hope that uh, young people coming to this uh, book will will get? Yes, the the dismal fact for we baby boomers uh, who endured this ourselves is that we're now a fading minority. The single biggest uh, demographic group in the country are the millennials. And uh, I was stunned to discover in the, in the marketing research for the book, they found that two-thirds of the American people were either not alive or not living in the United States when Nixon resigned office in 1974. So you have to start very uh, slowly at, and and persuade yourself as a writer that there are lots of people out there who don't automatically know how divisive the Vietnam War was or what the Christmas bombing was or who Henry Kissinger was, uh, much less going back into Nixon's uh, earlier days uh, running against John F. Kennedy uh, in the 1960 election. What, what, you know, what the presidential, why, why, were this, why were those presidential debates such a big deal? So I tried to tell the stories if I was um, uh, sitting down and telling it for the first time. And I went all the way back to his, his childhood, his first political campaigns, and tried to analyze what made this human being um, the way he was. I tried to humanize him without excusing or exonerating um, the, the sins that eventually caught up with him and caused him to resign. And he is a tragic figure. Uh, you know, the, the, there were some noble impulses, I think, right? Uh, but uh, there are the flaws, which uh, by the time he got to the White House and the intense pressures there, you really saw the cracks. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about where you, you begin in, the, in your book uh, with the 1946 race for Congress. He's a, he's a young man, mid-30s, right? He comes uh, out of World War II. He's served in the Pacific, and he has this ambition to run for Congress. Um, one side note, he's I think he's endorsed by the NAACP in this, in this race. Of course, this is in bold relief to his, his cynical Southern strategy later on. But... Um, I want you to talk a little bit about this and, and some of the things which appear in Watergate later on uh, appear here. There's some dirty tricks and slush fund money. And and he, uh, in the end, one of your chapters is called I Had to Win. He told a, he told a, um, a, a an aide after the race of the congressman he defeated, well, yeah, I did some things, but I had to win. Yep. I think you know, Nixon was entirely a, a self-made man. He grew up in the outback of rural California. There's a photograph in the book of uh, Yorba Linda and what it looked like then, and it looks like, uh, in that photograph, it looks like Oklahoma in the Dust Bowl days. And they were a poor family. His his father was not a very skillful farmer. He managed to fail at growing lemons in one of the planet's great and most bountiful citrus belts. Um, and... Uh, uh, had an, uh, a fierce temper, and there are indications that he was um, at least emotionally abusive to his sons. And Nixon's mother was a very uh, quiet, uh, self-contained woman. She was a, uh, a devout Quaker who used to retreat into her closet to um, to pray. And as Nixon himself famously said, my mother never told me that she loved me. And so 
this sort of emotional privation that he grew up in was was then exacerbated when his younger brother dies of meningitis, uh, the curly-haired baby uh, boy of the family. And then the elder brother, the one that, that his father was always throwing in Dick's face as the best and the brightest of the lot, um, contracts tuberculosis and takes six years to die and wrecks the family finances and deprives Dick of the opportunity to go to go east to an Ivy League college. And all these things uh, mount on, on uh, Nixon. Uh, he gets away to law school, but when he comes back, he, he fails as an entrepreneur uh, trying to market frozen orange juice and in his first big legal case, he gets sued for malpractice. So um, he's not doing very well when World War II breaks out, um, except in love. He's very lucky in love. Um, Pat Nixon, um, Pat Ryan Nixon was an exceptional woman. And one of the things I found as I did the job, as I did the book was um, what an appealing person that, that she was. Um, so he comes home from doing a fine job in World War II, serves bravely, constantly is volunteering to be brought up closer to, the, to where the combat is. Um, and out of the blue, he gets this uh, letter from uh, the sort of the small businessmen of Whittier, California, saying, we need somebody, uh, almost a suicide mission, we need somebody who will take on the Democratic incumbent, Jerry Voorhees. And Nixon says, boy, I jump at that chance. And so he was he was a desperate candidate, and he really felt he had to win. This was his shot. Um, he had some things going for him. It was 1946. And uh, the the country was ready for a change after all the regimentation of the Depression and World War II. Uh, but he also, like you said, he also um, showed his affinity for dirty tricks. He he had this habit of of filling out long legal pads with things to do, you know, just to do lists like like all of us do, you know, uh, make an appointment to speak to the Rotary Club, uh, put an ad in the local newspaper, uh, arrange for next Friday's rally. And at the bottom of one of those lists, I found this notation, put spies in the enemy camp. So from the beginning, he had this sort of inclination for um, skullduggery. Um, and uh, during the campaign, uh, Voorhis underestimated him and ran a poor campaign. But uh, Nixon also um, uh, concocted this charge that Voorhis was soft on communism. And he played it very hard. Uh, he ended up winning uh, by a very healthy margin. And that was what uh, Voorhis's aide had accused him of, which was um, playing dirty on the on the issue of of communism, and that's when Nixon said, "Yeah, but you know, you don't understand. I had to win." Yeah, Nixon was up front. He said, "Of course, I knew Jerry Voorhees wasn't a communist, but uh, you know, exactly. I, I, exactly. I had had to win." Uh, there was there's something about Nixon the candidate, though, you know, beyond the dirty tricks and and such, the you know, win at all costs. Uh, he he did seem to be able to make a connection with with people. Yes, he was um, one of the most disciplined um, presidents probably that we've ever had. People ask me a lot about comparisons between Trump and Nixon, and one of the big differences is that uh, Richard Nixon um, was disciplined. He he called it uh, uh, he himself called it a fetish of his. Yeah, if you know, notice in the pictures, he almost always has a a coat and tie on, and the, the famous picture of him walking on the beach with his uh, dress shoes in in San Clemente um, shows this uh, man who was uh, very square. A principled, hardworking um, individual, and um, always uh, had the ability to tap others who were like that too. Small business people. Um, his his first slogan, his first campaign slogan was "Richard Nixon is one of us," um, and he also had the ability to identify from his own resentments and grievances. Um, 
those in the voters and to speak to them in a way that they understood because he shared their feelings. So uh, those were some of his attributes. The resiliency has to be his, one of his greatest, um, being able to come back from all those um, uh, defeats in 1960 and 1962, um, even the sort of modified uh, comeback after he left office in, in 74, ended up back on the cover of Newsweek maybe five or six, ten years later uh, with a big headline saying, he's back. So uh, Nixon had tremendous resiliency. He was a uh, He was a scholar. He was always reading books, and he was a visionary. There's a 1967 article in a foreign uh, affairs magazine in which he's writing about uh, Asia, and everybody else writing about Asia is focused on uh, the immediate outcome of the Vietnam War. And Nixon is writing about what happens after that, and he predicts that there's going to be this coming information age where computers and creativity and the uh, freedom of a, a country's people are going to be determining factors not the totalitarian control that that, uh, uh, dominated uh, China and the Soviet Union, where you round people up and send them to work in factories, but the nimbleness of of intelligence in this computer age would be defining. And that the only great obstacle to this, to this emergence in Asia, was that Red China had closed itself off and was, as Nixon used to say, stewing in its own juices and getting nuclear weapons. And so Nixon made this one of his great... Um, a challenge is that he was going to be the person who, who brought Red China peacefully into the family of nations so that it didn't emerge 20 or 30 years later as an angry, brutal power with uh, nuclear arms and ruin this coming uh, information age with all its potential. So lots of great things to say about Nixon, um, which is why it is a tragedy that he had uh, those flaws that brought him down. Interesting. He's reasoning there. You you could apply today to North Korea, right? But, uh, it know. probably could. Um, I'm not a big enough expert to know whether or not um, uh, what kind of hold the North Koreans have on, on their people um, and to whether or not they are reachable with that kind of diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very famous secret diplomacy with uh, Henry Kissinger, his national security aide, putting on a raincoat and dark glasses and and uh, uh, having a double um, replace him in his motorcade while he hopped on an airplane and and uh, scuttled off to Beijing, and uh, and then the American ping pong team on tour in in Japan, being invited by uh, Chairman Mao to come play in in China as a signal to the United States that they were willing to relax some of their um, uh, uh, barriers against uh, 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 individuals, tourists from the West, uh, and then finally the great uh, amazing trip where. Nixon steps off the airplane and he shakes hand with Zhao Enlai and he's taken to meet Mao and um, Mao says famously um, that uh, oh, sometimes it's uh, men of the right can do what men of the left cannot. Or in other words, uh, only Nixon can go to China, which has, of course, entered our uh, our lexicon. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, just a uh, uh, fascinating guy all around and um, I had to... Uh, learn all about his early days, all the good things he did. You, you, you talked about race. His his record on race is much more textured than, than I imagined. Uh, he did some amazing things. He was a, a close ally of Martin Luther King in the 1950s. So um, I, I think there's a lot of surprises in the book, a lot of interest in the book besides um, 
just sort of rehashing uh, the 60s one more time. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, talk uh, a bit about race. I want to talk about the uh, Nixon's anti-elitism. There's another parallel with with, uh, with Trump. Uh, Nixon viewed himself as one of the people and uh, had suspicion, maybe even loathing for, for the elites. Um, and we'll talk about much more, of course. The uh, book is Richard Nixon, The Life. The uh, author is John A. Farrell. He's joined us for the hour. More following this break. Did you know that children with autism can learn to communicate and play with other children when they receive early and intensive intervention? Research has shown that programs based on the principles of applied behavior analysis can help children with autism reach their potential. By identifying each child's specific strengths and weaknesses, professionals can create individualized programs that give the child the opportunity to practice appropriate behaviors and receive positive reinforcement. Through early intensive behavioral intervention, children with autism can learn the skills necessary for success in kindergarten and beyond. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for joining us for Access U-Time. Tom Williams, we're talking uh, with the author of a fascinating new biography of Richard Nixon. It's called Richard Nixon, The Life. The author is John Farrell, and you're welcome to join this conversation. We're talking about some parallels with the uh, current uh, president, parallels between the 37th and 45th president, and talking about uh, Richard Nixon's life, uh, which is a fascinating, complex life. Um, and uh, John Farrell says he, he, he wrote this uh, directed to, um, in large part, to uh, people who are not familiar with Nixon, didn't grow up with him, uh, and with the whole Watergate thing, the 60s. Um, and there are some fascinating nuances in this, uh, the life of our, the only president to resign a disgrace. Uh, 800-826-1495 is the number, 800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Um, what, what about, uh, John Farrell, what about uh, Nixon the man? Um, what, what did you find? Of course, there's Nixon, the persona, but you, uh, yep. you had access to oral histories and friends and family, you know, uh, recorded histories. Uh, tell us a little bit about yep. Nixon, yep. the man. Let me, uh, let me tell you a couple of stories. Uh, sometimes it's best to tell, answer a question like that with, with anecdotes. Um, so in 1946, he goes to Congress and he gets a lot of attention because he's on the red hunting uh, committee on Un-American Activities, and he chases down this um, Soviet uh, agent named Alger Hiss, who had infiltrated the State Department. And that that story is pretty commonly known. What what wasn't known was that uh, in that that same um, uh, uh, term in office, um, George Marshall went to Harvard, and Secretary of State George Marshall proposes the Marshall Plan to um, supply the suffering nations of Western Europe um, who are being gripped by disease and starvation. And Nixon's district, conservative Southern California, is up in arms against this. They see this as a socialist giveaway um, to a bunch of lazy Europeans who just need to uh, get up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps after the uh, bootstraps after the war, um, and uh, take care of themselves. And, and he actually gets letters from his closest and most important political backers saying, "Do not support this. It will be dangerous for you." 
Um, it's pouring money down a rat hole. So Nixon goes over there and he inspects conditions and he sees immediately that the um, starvation and the unemployment and the devastation is, is very real and there's nothing socialist or lazy about it. And so he comes home and he has a choice, and it's the classic choice presented to any representative, which is do you, do you owe the people your judgment or do you just owe them blind obedience? And he decides that he owes his constituents his judgment. He goes back to Southern California, and as far that he went in that first campaign and as hard as he ran and as much as he felt that he had to win, he now gambles it all on the principle of internationalism, on the principle of the Marshall Plan, he puts his entire career at stake there in that first re-election campaign. And he goes around the district and he talks to the um, uh, Rotary Clubs, and he talks to the JCs, and he talks to the Chambers of Commerce. And he persuades that district, he turns it around. And he turns it around to such an extent that he not only wins the Republican nomination again in 1948, he wins the Democratic nomination in 1948. So that I, I think that is a, an untold story of Richard Nixon that just really shows that this is a man who had vision, he had conscience, and he had superb political skills to be able to, to pull that off. Um, the, the other story I, I wanted to tell was was one of, of uh, Senator Bob Dole, who folks remember ran against uh, Bill Clinton uh, f uh, back in 1996 uh, for the presidency as the Republican nominee. And Bob Dole went to war in northern uh, Italy during World War II, and he was horribly wounded. Um, uh, his back and his arm and his shoulder were all shattered. Uh, the medics dipped their finger in his blood and wrote the word, the letter M on Bob Dole's forehead to signify that he had been given a maximum dose of uh, morphine and any more would, would probably kill him. So Bob Dole comes home from war and he stays in rehab for probably a year, two years, and he chooses the, the field of politics. And it's very difficult for Bob Dole because his arm is, when, once it's healed, is totally um, twisted and, and, and useless, and, and every morning with his left hand, he grabs his right arm and brings it up to his chest and puts a pen in his hand or a rolled-up piece of paper so that people will not reach out and try to shake hands with him. And, of course, they do because it's a, such a reflexive uh, act. But Bob Dole remembered that of all the politicians that he ever met and all the rubber chicken dinners that he ever went to, there was one man who always remembered to extend his left hand to shake Bob Dole's hand, and that was Richard Nixon. And when Bob Dole gave the eulogy at Nixon's funeral, he couldn't go through with it. He broke down in, in, in tears and had to struggle to, to um, uh, contain himself because um, he remembered that kindness. So, so the image we have of, of Tricky Dick, um, the, uh, the, e the evil trickster, um, is in many ways true. Uh, there are segments from the tapes that are included in the book that are terribly ugly, um, I personally think that for all his strategic vision, he was blind on Vietnam and caused um, horrible and needless suffering. And, of course, he had this susceptibility for uh, illegal intrigue in Watergate. But there were very good qualities about the man at the same time. Given all that was good and, and that he probably could have been successful you know, based on vision and, uh, and talent, uh, what what is the fatal flaw? Is it is it this self deep insecurity? What what, yeah, what do you think I, is I, the fatal flaw? I think I think you put your finger on it, uh, um, I, I, Tommy. Was it was? I, I don't want to. I'm not a trained psychiatrist or psychologist, so I don't want to go tread too far into this. But I really believe that um, um, that he struggled all his life to get his father's respect and didn't get it uh, because he was sort of a bookworm. 
and he struggled for his mother's love, um, who she was the intellectual in the family and, and understood him, but was still that same kind of, uh, like I said, that self-contained woman who never showed um, that much emotion, and at one point left the family for several years because she had to take care of, of uh, Nixon's tubercular um, brother. Um, and then he, he got out in the world and he found that the world gave people like John F. Kennedy um, unfair advantages, that life is unfair, that Kennedy was born with sex appeal and good looks and uh, money and uh, fame and charisma. Um, and uh, then Richard Nixon ran against him in 1960, and Nixon came away from that campaign believing that for all those advantages, that Kennedy still stooped to cheating him out of the election on election night by uh, stealing votes in uh, Illinois and in, and in Texas. And so from that point on, his natural in, inclinations of insecurity and, and paranoia um, were heightened, and he became driven, as his daughter Julie um, told me, that he would never be out-cheated again. And so he justified all the actions that came subsequently um, as being uh, those uh, of what other candidates in, in the Cold War did, and as it turned out after Watergate, we found out that he was right. He was sort of a victim of a double standard. Um, but at the same time, he uh, he stuck his head. At the same time he was taunting um, the cannoneer, he was sticking his head in the mouth of the cannon as well. Mm. Um, and that's why he, he came to suffer from it. There, there, there you know, many parallels between Nixon and Trump. One one that's sticking out to me here is is for different reasons. And, you know, Trump fam- famously is not insecure. And not self-reflective, but the manifestation seems to be similar. He's a chip on his shoulder about the elites, and he wants wants acceptance, but also has a kind of a disdain for the elites as well. Yeah, well, grandiosity can come from hidden insecurities. Um, you know, Nixon was sort of you know, if you could listen to Nixon on the tapes, the the raw presidential id sort of uh, sounds a little bit like uh, Trump's tweets. Um, so, you know, I don't know enough about. Trump. I do know that he was sent away to military school when he was only um, 12 or 13, and that, that he too had an older brother that was favored by um, by his father. So there may be some similarities in their in their backdrop um, there. Um, but uh, the the Trump's ability last fall to tap what I call the politics of grievance um, is very similar to Nixon's um, uh, politics of the silent majority of reaching out in in terms of turmoil, in Nixon's case it was the 60s, and in, um, in uh, Trump's case it's a, it's a time of great demographic uh, and economic change, um, finding the, the, the fears and the resentments in people and um, uh, tapping them in Nixon's case, I think, um, because he identified with them and, and they with him. They were indeed his great silent majority. They were folks uh, like him. I think that there's very little, few similarities between Trump and and, and his base, uh, other than maybe a certain um, uh, business affinity. But um, he's, I think he studied Nixon um, uh, very well. I mean, he had uh, he was an admirer of Nixon. He had uh, aides that uh, aides and advisors who who knew Nixon, and it was no mistake when uh, Trump uh, talked about law and order and uh, building his own silent majority last fall. Yeah, these are some parallels that uh, Trump has encouraged. I mean, you know, he's yeah, he's actually talked about Nixon. I don't know if he, you know, if he'd like the words Watergate uh, and and those kinds of words, but there there are some other parallels where you find that he admires Nixon. Um, what staying on Nixon just for a moment, uh, the person, 
one thing that jumped out at me uh, from the book, and that we you know we knew, and that you've uh, you've dived more deeply in the book, is the awkwardness. And it's it's kind of, in some ways, it's kind of endearing. For example, the letters to Pat. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which are, <laughs> which are all just you know cringeworthy but charming as well. Yep. Um, well, they had this. They had this amazing um, love affair, and uh, and it, it was endearing. Would you, would you think your readers would like me to, to read it? Uh, yes. Me? Yes. Okay. Sure. Um, so this is uh, this is Dick writing to um, uh, to Pat. Did I say readers? I meant listeners. Um, uh, so Dick writes and says, and says, "Pat, you are an Irish gypsy who radiates all that is happy and beautiful." And he thanks her for leaving a note addressed to a struggling barrister who looks from a window and dreams. For though he is a prosaic person, his heart was filled with grand poetic music, which makes us wish for those we love the realization of great dreams. And so that was Dick Nixon and the side that we mm-hmm. never very rarely right. see. Right. And so this is the way Pat writes him back, and this is you know, one reason why I fell in love with Pat. Um, so he finally wears her down, and she relents, and she sends him uh, her address and says, come on by, and this is the way she says it. Social note dash romantic question mark. In case I don't see you before, why don't you come by early Wednesday and I'll see if I can burn a hamburger for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's the the kind of uh, heights of fancy that Nixon uh, drove himself to, and mm-hmm. the way that Pat was always able to sort of uh, bring his feet back to earth. Yeah. Uh, late in the book, uh, you recount an exchange with uh, David Frost. Of course, famously, he Nixon, after his resignation, needed money, and he agreed to a series of television interviews with uh, British uh, broadcaster David Frost. So, the, the and this is just, just cringeworthy, but it kind of illustrates the awkwardness. Uh, he's trying to make small talk. Nixon just can't make small talk. And uh, before they start taping, he says, did you do any fornicating this weekend? <laughs> which is which? No one says that, right? But uh, I guess you know, yeah. Nixon Nixon would say things like that. He was he was an awkward person, and I, and I you put your finger on it, uh, Tom, when you said it was had an endearing quality. One of the things I was struck in in talking to the former aides that have stayed loyal to him over the years was how protective they felt uh, for him. Um, he had an awkwardness. He he overcame it, uh, as, as he famously once said, "I'm an introvert in an extrovert's profession." And so he had to study, and he had to force himself. He had to rehearse um, to overcome that. He would rehearse endlessly before speech. He would write the speech himself out on these pads so that the words sunk into his memory. He'd memorize them and then deliver them uh, without a teleprompter or with even out note cards sometimes. And um, uh, just by by sheer discipline and will could overcome um, that awkwardness. Uh, in that first campaign, he had a he had a difficulty for some reason I guess probably dealing back to his difficulties with his mom, but he had a difficulty looking women in the eye, look women voters in the eye, and they immediately his his campaign advisors immediately spotted that and said, Dick, you know you, you can't win this if you can't get the votes of half the the population, um, and he said, okay, okay, what do you, you know what what should we do about it? And he studied and he practiced and he forced himself to to uh, look women in the eye, and they had it they finally had a, a test for him. They set up a, uh, a a coffee clutch with a, a bunch of uh, what was then called coeds from uh, all female Scripps College, and they sat around in a living room and they brought Nixon in and put him on the sofa and challenged him uh, to persuade um, these uh, young women to vote for him. And he did. He looked them in the eye. He answered their questions um, because um, 
when, when Richard Nixon knew that he had to do something to be successful in politics, he would apply that amazing will, determination, and discipline to it, and he would, in most cases, get it done. Now, Pat, his wife saw him, came to see him as a man of destiny, um, and, you know, the the arc of his life, you could uh, lend weight to that. It won a congressional seat against all odds in 1946. Four years later, he's a senator. Six years later, he's vice president of the United States. Isn't that amazing? Six years, from not, from nobody to vice president. Is that So he had burning ambition, uh, some skills, I guess dirty tricks are a part of it, too. What do, to what do you attribute that amazing ascent? Um. Everything you said, plus it was the right time. You know, on the on the other side of the continent, John F. Kennedy was uh, had had other attributes, of course, but was also uh, running on the slogan, uh, "A new generation offers a leader." And there was just this feeling that the boys who had fought the war were coming home, and they, that World War II generation was going to be taking over, um, and that they had seen so many of their buddies die that uh, they felt a responsibility to make our society uh, better and the world a better place so that all those deaths and suffering could be uh, justified. The relationship with Eisenhower, in some ways it must have been, I don't know, painful, a painful replay of the relationship with his father. I don't know. Is that leaning too much on it? Eisenhower seemed to kind of hold him at arm's length. Yeah, I mean, Ike was the supreme commander, the liberator of Europe, and he was used to dealing with big personalities like Winston Churchill and George Patton and Franklin Roosevelt. So, um, uh, when Ike uh, selected Nixon in a typical bit of um, skullduggery, by the way, in which Nixon sort of um, plunged a knife into the back of Governor Earl Warren of, of his native state of California, um, Ike treated him like staff. I mean, he was a second lieutenant in the war, uh, a lieutenant in the war, and so that's the way Ike, Ike treated him, and it drove Nixon crazy because he desperately wanted um, uh, Eisenhower's approval. Um, Eisenhower had, had doubts throughout the four years of the first term uh, about Nixon and in resolving to run again for re-election, um, went through a very painful period where um, he wanted Nixon to drop off the ticket and take a job in the cabinet uh, instead, which could have been good advice because Nixon was never very skilled at, at managing big organizations. That might have been helpful to him later on when he was um, president. But Nixon knew that the American people would see this as a message from Eisenhower that I don't want this guy as my successor because Ike had had a heart attack and he had a, um, a stroke and he also had a, uh, uh, a serious uh, um, intestinal operation while he was president. In all those cases, Nixon performed quite capably as vice president. And so for Eisenhower to like, want to move him out of being a heartbeat away from the president sent a big signal um, not just to uh, the public, but also to Nixon, and it, it wounded him deeply. Mm. And uh, Eisenhower, the famous quote, they ask him, uh, what were Nixon's contributions to your administration? He says, uh, give me a week, maybe I can think of something. Yeah, which is kind of an off-the-cuff you know, off the cuff, you know, joke at the end of a press conference, but it, it was devastating to Nixon both personally and, and it, was, it was certainly not helpful for him at all politically. Now, you you said earlier that uh, the, the lesson, the big lesson Nixon took from the 1960 campaign, one of the closest elections in history, um, well, he felt that uh, the Kennedys had used dirty tricks, and uh, so I, you know, I've, I've got to keep with my dirty tricks to uh, to win. 
Yeah. Um, there was a, a story that's not in the book of in 68 when he was running for office of a Secret Service agent walking down the aisle of his airplane and coming upon Nixon. Uh, Nixon didn't know he was there, and Nixon was pounding his hand into the armrest of his um, airplane seat saying, got to be tougher, got to be tougher, got to be tougher. And uh, that was the resolve that Nixon took away from um, that experience. We, we'll never know um, who, won the, who won the popular vote in that election it was it was far too close and there were uh, there was an ir- uh, a legal irregular way of counting the votes in Alabama which could have made the difference between giving the popular vote one way or the other and there were allegations of, of vote stealing um, in many states um, we do know that the only state in which there was a recount went from uh, which was Hawaii went from Nixon back to Kennedy so there's an equal chance that some of the other states that were so close could have uh, flipped to Kennedy rather than to Nixon but Nixon was always um, firm in his belief, and there is there is certainly suggestive evidence that uh, Illinois and Texas um, were were in fact um, stolen from him, and uh, it was something that he, for the good of the country, as good of his own political career, um, had to bite his tongue and live with, thinking he was a young man and he would get another chance, and of course um, he did. But it certainly didn't help that that paranoia and that sense of of grievance to have um, the Kennedys uh, stoop so low as as he saw it. It was especially painful because he was a, a close friend of John F. Kennedy, and one of the chapters in in the book quotes John F. Kennedy as saying that you know after World War II, in the dark days of the Cold War, Richard Nixon um, was the kind of man this country needs. Uh, they were they were admirers, they were buddies. The Nixons were invited to Jack and Jackie's wedding. Um, and when Jack Kennedy had a, uh, uh, a serious back operation and was close to dying, uh, Nixon was seen in the halls of Walter Reed Hospital, pounding on the on the wall, saying, "Poor Jack, poor brave Jack is going to die." So it was that made the, that made the betrayal of 1960, I think, twice as difficult and hard for Nixon to take. Let's take another break. When we come back, more our last segment with John Farrell. He's author of a new biography, Richard Nixon: The Life. More following this break. The caps have all been thrown, the diplomas handed out. This year's college graduates are ready to make their first foray into adulthood. But a new study says that journey will take them right back to their parents' doorstep. According to Pew Research, nearly 60% of parents in the U.S. provide for their adult children with financial help, including a place to live. Are you one of them? Then the Access Utah team wants to hear from you. Share any struggles or successes you've had with adult children living at home by emailing upraccess at gmail.com or tweet us at upraccess. Access Utah, weekdays from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with John Farrell. He's author of Richard Nixon, The Life. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It's getting uh, rave reviews, and uh, the, the publication of this could not be more timely. A lot of parallels being thrown around between Nixon and, uh, and uh, our current president, President Trump. Um, we're exploring some of those parallels, and we're uh, diving into the life, character, legacy of our 37th president, Richard Nixon. 
Uh, John Farrell is with us uh, for another uh, about 15 minutes, and you can join the conversation at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so 1968, uh, John Farrell, one of the great comebacks in uh, in political uh, history. Um, after the 1960 loss, very narrow loss for president, uh, Nixon two years later runs for governor of California, loses, and um, and then he's in the wilderness. But he but he comes back, and one of the strategies I want to talk about, uh, have you talk about, is he he devises this what has become famous as the Southern strategy. Which is kind of a, you can be seen as a you know pretty cynical, indicating to you know the white Southerners that uh, that I'm not going to be uh, pro African American, or as they called it back then, Negro. This coming on the heels of you know many years earlier, his first race for Congress, he was uh, made an honorary member of the local NAACP. So what happened? Well, I stopped the sort of narrative of the book at several points. Talk about race because I think it's very revealing of of Nixon's character. Uh, he was indeed very committed to the cause of civil rights early in his career. He was a member of the NAACP. Um, he uh, was close friends in the 1950s and an ally with Martin Luther King and played an instrumental role getting the 1957 civil rights bill um, passed and uh, through, the, through the Senate. He was by Eisenhower's side when Eisenhower used the uh, airborne troops to uh, save the students from Central High School in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So had a sterling record, and then uh, in the 1960, when he's running for president, he sees the possibility that he might pick up some of the southern states that Eisenhower had captured as a national hero, uh, Florida, Tennessee, Virginia, uh, Texas, um, if he just tailors his message the, the slightest bit. Kennedy was doing the same thing. It was no um, uh, secret to anybody that the that the winning candidate would be the one who might best manage the uh, trick of getting the uh, black turnout high in the northern cities while at the same time uh, winning in the southern states. Um, and it all came to, to a head when Martin Luther King was arrested um, on a bogus charge, shackled and taken off to a, a rural prison in the middle of the night, and everybody began to worry about whether or not he would actually survive the, that journey. Uh, and the Kennedys decided to intercede with the uh, Democratic governor of Georgia and the, and the judge in the case, um, and called Mrs. King and expressed their um, concern. And Nixon, confronted with the same choice, decided not to. And his uh, campaign said no comment. And at that time, Jackie Robinson, who uh, integrated professional baseball for the Brooklyn Dodgers, was a firm, strong Nixon supporter. And he flew to the Chicago where Nixon was campaigning, and he met with him and he, in private. And when he came out of that room, there were tears streaking down his, his face. And and Martin Luther King later said that Nixon had failed this test of, of moral courage. Uh, and that was the big turning point, because from that point on, Nixon just uh, believed that he was never going to get enough black votes um, to justify it. And in 1968, of course, he was running against Ronald Reagan, uh, and who was running from the right, and he was running in the general election against George Wallace. Um, so he he could do with nods and winks what he needed to do to win um, the Southern delegations at the convention, uh, where he promised that the Southern delegation chairman that he would, quote, cut out the pro-Negro crap. Um, and then in the general election, he knew that Wallace were going to take the Deep South, but he worked very hard to win states like uh, Tennessee and Virginia and um, and Florida and, and did so. And so you, you have Nixon turning, but 
there's one more twist to the story, which is as president of the United States, he's given the order by the Supreme Court to get on with the desegregation of Southern schools. It's the the ruling by Brown versus Board of Education was 1954, and both uh, Eisenhower, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson had all dragged their feet. Um, now the Supreme Court was getting very impatient, and it fell to Nixon to do the job, and he did it expertly, and he did it quietly, and he did it successfully, and he did it without violence. Uh, he did it by bringing black and white Americans together from those states, bringing them to the White House to work out plans for integration, taking them into the Oval Office. And, li- and like we said, this is a very awkward man who does not like personal encounters with people and, and lobbying them personally, calling, asking them to look around the Oval Office and feel the weight of history that he did. Um, and he gets it done, and he becomes the biggest desegregator of Southern schools um, in American history. And um, gets very little credit for it because um, Nixon being Nixon, he didn't want credit for it. He wanted to do it all quietly so that he could continue to appeal to white Southerners. Uh, but he did the right thing. Um, and uh, black voters in the South recognized this. And he, he had an approval rating of uh, 43 to 40 among black voters in the South after they watched him desegregate those schools. Yeah, it's very, very complex. Um, that's, yeah, yeah. That, that Southern strategy then kind of goes up. It was very successful for a long time for the Republicans and then sort of becomes a problem. Um, but, but it was, you know, it's, it's kind of subtle. Trump made it more overt, you know, in his campaign, but it's a, kind of kind of a similar thing, just, uh, you know, a little, little less nuanced. Um, well, I think but, you know, we have the, these huge demographic changes going on in the country, and in the long run, painting yourself into an, an all-white party, um, you know, you may win an election uh, like 2016, but in the long run, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you. And I think that there are lots of people in the Republican Party uh, who recognize this. I think Ronald Reagan recognize this. I think uh, other um, conservatives recognize this. And so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, um, if Trump was the last stand of the Southern strategy. Also, you you talked about this, you know, he, he tried to keep it quiet because he wanted to preserve the white votes, but, uh, you know, uh, participating with segregation or with desegregation. Um, a lot of Nixon's policies on the domestic front Probably wouldn't pass muster today with with uh, conservative Republicans. You know, EPA, OSHA, being a couple of examples. The the list of uh, of course he had a, now he had a Democratic Congress, so he was constantly getting proposals, and this was a time when people believed in government uh, activism. But you know, he and Eisenhower had seen how um, they how uh, Americans put good government to use in World War II, and they didn't have this sort of reflexive. Um, uh, hostility for it that uh, Ronald Reagan did. Um, he Nixon was quite happy um, to, uh, and his domestic uh, record is astonishing. He created the Environmental Protection Agency. He created the Occupational Safety uh, and uh, Health Administration. He uh, signed the Endangered Species Act. He signed the, Nas- the National Environmental Policy Act. He signed the Clean Air Act. He um, okayed Title IX for female uh, athletes. He approved the first muscular federal affirmative action plan. Uh, he signed two major strategic arms treaties with the, the Soviet Union and brought China uh, into the uh, world of nations. 
Native Americans still remember his policy as being ideal. He doubled funding for the arts. Um, senior citizens who have cost of living increases every year can thank Richard Nixon and the de- that Democratic Congress. And, uh, and ironies of all ironies, it was Richard Nixon who presented to um, uh, Congress a uh, health care plan that uh, was very, very similar to Obamacare. It was based on a mandate, based on, based on private insurance with government subsidies. And uh, the Democrats turned it down. And Senator Edward Kennedy said later that it was the biggest legislative mistake of his career because they could have gotten Obamacare passed uh, back in 1971 or 1974 and put that whole argument to rest. And instead, it has raged on for almost another 50 years. Yeah, and and probably beyond uh, beyond today. Um, I just want to, uh, we just have about uh, five minutes left. I want to uh, treat briefly, at least, uh, Watergate and, and the Vietnam War. You, there's uh, some... Uh, uh, explosive new reporting in your book, and so I want to get to that uh, before we close. But first of all, I've, I've always had a question about Watergate, and you know, this is sort of peering into Nixon's soul and his character. But it it was it's always been my impression. 1972, um, Democrats kind of get lost in the weeds and, uh, and nominate uh, George McGovern. It looked like it was. Always looked like it was going to be a re-election victory, didn't it? So why authorize a break-in to the Democratic National Headquarters? Well, it, this was a this was a long-running uh, thing of his. I mean, three months in, in his first hundred days, he had already hired the first White House uh, dirty tricksters um, and uh, put them to work tailing Ted Kennedy. So it was not something that sort of came upon him in the spring of 1972 when McGovern was uh, had seized the nomination. Um, in May of 1971, uh, Nixon is captured on tape telling his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, uh, it's about time we started getting out on, on uh, following and bugging the Democratic candidates. And so his men did all that year leading up to 72. And at the time that Nixon said that, uh, he was uh, in doubt as to whether or not he was going to have a, a re-election victory. So the, the motivation was there. The actual time that the burglars were caught in June of '72, by then um, it looked like McGovern was going to was going to be the nominee, um, and so the, the question arose as to well, why did they already? Why, if this was so, were, were they in there in the Watergate? But but these were plans that had been that had been launched a year, two years earlier, um, when Nixon was was uh, persuaded that Edmund Muskie or Ted Kennedy or or somebody else was going to be a formidable uh, competitor in '72. We had a uh, caller who didn't want to go on the air, Bernadette from Rockville. Uh, she has a question about uh, uh, Nixon's uh, Quaker upbringing. She wonders uh-huh. how, how his Quaker upbringing influenced him uh, throughout his life and career. I think definitely that this impulse for uh, creating a what he called a structure of peace with balancing powers in, in great powers in the world who would sort of face off against each other and, and create um, uh, a stable environment for um, uh, economic progress um, came from from his mom. His mom's side of the family um, were Teddy Roosevelt Republicans. They were not um, hard right Republicans. They believed in progressivism, and of course, the um, Quaker religion is is about what's called peace in the center. And um, the Western Quakers are not quite as pacifist, committed to social justice as uh, Eastern Quakers, um, but uh, they, that 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 strain was definitely there. And just Nixon, to... Nixon had a grandfather who died. Um, fighting uh, for the Union at, uh, at Gettysburg. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah. He had deep roots on that side. 
just have about a minute and a half left. I, I do want to cover this. This is uh, one of the big uh, pieces of excellent reporting in the book. There's always been suspicion, right, that uh, that uh, President uh, Nixon or candidate Nixon, 1968, October 1968, opened a back channel to uh, to South Vietnam to uh, urge them to shut down a peace process that was ongoing uh, for political reasons. He wanted to, you know, that not to happen and the Democrats to get the credit. Right, Tom. The uh, it's always been known that this approach was made because LBJ had was eavesdropping on the South Vietnamese embassy. And um, a, uh, a woman from the Nixon campaign approached them and said, drag your feet on, on Johnson's peace plan, and you'll get a better deal when Nixon is elected. Um, Nixon, of course, always denied it. He denied it on a tape that you can listen to at the Johnson Library where he's talking to LBJ. Um, he denied it in that David Frost interview. He denied it quite specifically in the David Frost interview. And uh, one of the things that I was on the lookout for and one of the things I found was uh, a set of notes of Nixon barking orders to Haldeman, the chief of staff, during the campaign. Uh, and there are the instructions from Nixon, um, keep working on the South Vietnamese any way we can monkey wrench Johnson's peace initiative. So it's it's something that happened that we know happened in history, but Nixon always denied he was personally involved, and I was, I was able to put the words in his mouth. And uh, you could call this treason. Well, I don't think it's it's treason. It may be in violation of a of a of seldom used law called the uh, Logan Act, which mm. prohibits private citizens from uh, getting involved in American di- diplomacy. But I I just think that knowing that the number of lives at stake, both Americans and uh, Vietnamese and Cambodians, and what happened, and what followed, uh, I, I think that this is personally for me it was this was more reprehensible than anything that he done, that he did in Watergate, which. Um, which, if you talk to the Nixon folks, they they argue that there was a double standard, and indeed, as we found out in the Church Committee and other investigations after Watergate, um, all of our presidents had had uh, engaged in a lot of this kind of behavior. We'll have to leave it there. Much more, you'll have to read the book. John Farrell, Richard Nixon, The Life. Fascinating book, and it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's Marketplace Tech for Tuesday the 16th. I'm Ben Johnson. You've heard a lot by now about the malicious software that spread like wildfire across computer networks using Microsoft's products in recent days. The ransomware, the kind of program that holds your computer's information hostage until you pay up, was the result of a security flaw in Microsoft's software. It was apparently found by the National Security Agency for the purposes of using it... You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Communities. KUSR Logan, KUSR.